All right, as I said, we're coming to the close of this book, and as is the case with Paul's letters, uh, he makes mention of some people as he comes to the ending of his letters. And he begins um, in verse 7, well, we'll just read verses 7 through 9, because all of it is all talking about the same thing. It says, All my state shall Tychius declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. And as I said, this is the typical uh, beginning of the typical close of one of Paul's letters. Um, but why, why does he mention uh, these two men? What's, what's their particular job that we can gather from this these two verses, or the three verses. What is Tychius and Onesimus' job? Yeah, but what is their job right now? What, what is, what is he saying they're going to do right now? They have, he's, they've been given a responsibility. There you go. They're the ones delivering these letter, this letter. Now, first of all, what's interesting about the, the two of them are delivering this letter one of the ones that's delivering the letter is Onesimus. And Onesimus is who? Who is he, Mike? He was the slave. And so more than likely, what does Onesimus have in his pocket right now? A letter for Philemon. Okay. So we talked about Onesimus a lot when we were studying the book of Philemon. But you remember how Onesimus ended up in Rome, and evidently he was converted by Paul when he was in Rome. And in their discussions, they he decided that since he was a Christian now, he needed to go back to his master, Philemon. And uh, the book of Philemon is based upon this particular slave and how he should be received by his master, Philemon. And, um, of course, both these books, along with the book of Ephesians, Ephesians was written while Paul was in prison. And, um, of course, you remember when we study the book of Philemon, Onesimus tradition teaches us that more than likely he became an elder in the church. And so it was kind of an unusual... Uh, uh, unusual circumstances, started as a slave, and a runaway slave, and ended up being an elder in the church. And I'm sure it's because of the influence of Paul and also the influence of uh, Philemon. But I want you to notice also at the end of verse 9, uh, if you look at verse 9, notice that it says, um, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Now, what is that talking about? What do you think, Mike? It's not hard, it's not hard folks, so don't make this into something. All right, what's happening with Paul? Now, I bring that up because of the fact that there's a purpose in writing this letter, and there's also a purpose in delivering news about Paul. Now, you can get some news from this letter, but Paul never meant for this letter just to be a letter about what's going on with him. There were spiritual applications in the letter. Uh, you remember when we began the discussion of this letter, he was dealing with the Gnostics there in the church at Colossae, and the purpose of this letter was to deal with that false teaching. Well, other than the theological and the spiritual applications that need to be brought out in this letter, Paul also wanted them to know about what was going on there. He said, Get Tell people how I'm doing. Tell people what's happening. Tell them about my routine. Tell them about my conversions. Tell them about all these different things, um, which leads us, makes us understand that you're not going to find everything you need to find out in this book 
about what was going on with Paul and the church at Colossae, but the things that we do have in this book are the things that are inspired and the things that the Lord wanted us or God wanted us to know about. Yes, Karen? All right. Okay. And so you've got, um, you've got uh, uh, Tychius and Onesimus is going to tell them uh, everything that was going on with Paul and his cohorts. All right. Then we begin in verse 10, and he starts naming um, some other men. Um, Verse 10, it says, Articus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, uh, touching whom you receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him, and Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. So he mentions um, three men here. Uh, Articus, um, I'd be surprised if you remember him, but he's mentioned in the book of Acts, uh, over in Acts chapter 19. I don't know if you remember when we had the sermon series on the book of Acts, I talked about how in Acts 19 that there were people who were um, making um, profit off of, uh, of the temple Diana, and uh, because of Paul's preaching, a big riot broke out, and Articus was one of the ones that was arrested and was being held by the crowd. And so he's been with Paul all along. Uh, He's a good helper of Paul. And if you want to learn more about him, you can go back and read chapter 19 of the book of Acts. But I want to pay special attention to the next person that is mentioned that is with him. And his name is Marcus, uh, sister's son to Barnabas. Who is that? It's the writer of the gospel of Mark. That's one thing he is. Who else is he? All right, first of all, we got to think about Barnabas, and this was Barnabas's nephew. That's what it means in the King James when it says sister's son to Barnabas, okay? This was Barnabas's nephew. You know him probably by another name, John Mark, okay? This is John Mark, and you remember how that John Mark went on the very first missionary journey, and it came time to start the second missionary journey. What happened? Barnabas and Paul had an argument. Barnabas wanted to bring his nephew with him, and uh, for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't tell us, Paul did not want John Mark to come on the second mission. And it got to the point that Paul and Barnabas separated ways. They no longer traveled together as missionaries. So we don't know what the point of contention was, but there was a point of contention there. But you go back now to um, at the very end of of history as far as Paul's history is concerned, and now who look is, who's in Rome with Paul? Who's his helper and fellow prisoner? It's John Mark. And as we also, as he's already brought out, uh, Mike's already brought out, eventually the same John Mark is going to write the gospel of Mark. Uh, more than likely, he, he had the opportunity to sit at Peter's feet, and Peter recounted to him all the things that he didn't personally eyewitness And Mark gave us the gospel of Mark because of that uh, conversation with the apostle Peter. Um, But I do think it's interesting that whatever the problem was that John Mark had, he either grew out of it or Paul changed his mind or there was a mutual compromise or whatever. But here Paul is in prison in Rome and one of the people who's by his side is the very one that the apostle Paul said, that guy ain't coming with me. And so things have changed. But any questions or comments about that? All right, in verse 11, it talks about 
Jesus, which is called justice. Now, when you first look at that, as I do, you see the word Jesus, and you say, well, that's odd. Here's the word Jesus. And whenever we think about Jesus, we think about Jesus Christ. But we need to understand and appreciate the fact that the name Jesus was a very, very common name during this time. Jesus is the Greek version of what Hebrew word? You know, Joshua or Jeshua. And it kind of sounds like Jesus, Jeshua, if you say it the Hebrew way, Jeshua, Jesus. So it's the Greek uh, form of the word Joshua. And so in Hebrew, Jesus Christ's name would be Joshua Christ, okay? And uh, Joshua means what? Anybody remember? What's the word Joshua mean? Same thing that Jesus means. Jehovah saves, and which was a very appropriate name uh, for Jesus because certainly <laughs> Jehovah saves us through him, but that was a very common name. And, um, and here we have a guy that was named Jesus, but now it says which is called justice. And justice was the Latin or Roman word for just one. So he, for some reason he was called the just one. Now there's a lot of speculation why uh, he was called the just one. It may be that um, he was a very just person and that became his nickname. Or it may be a name that he just happened to pick for himself because he did not want to be called Jesus anymore. And you wonder why he didn't want to be called Jesus anymore him being a Christian. Maybe he didn't feel worthy of that name any longer. But for some reason, and the people at Colossae knew this, that this was a guy that was formerly known as Jesus, but now goes by the Latin name for the just one. And this is all the information that we have of these particular of this particular person. We have no other biblical record of a guy named Jesus who was which was called Justice. But notice it says about these three people. It says, who are of the circumcision. Now, what does that mean? They were all Jewish. And he names three Jewish people here. And after he names three Jewish people, he's going to name three Greek people. And it shows you the harmony of Paul's ministry and the harmony of Christianity, that Paul mentions three Jewish co-workers, and now he's going to name three Gentile co-workers. Because all are one in Christ Jesus. And so we get to verse 12, and it talks about Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Epaphras is a shortened form of the word Epaphroditus. And, of course, Epaphroditus was mentioned earlier in this book as the one who brought the news of the church and Colossae to Paul and the problems there. Uh, he was a preacher that evidently had a, uh, a big influence on that region, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But he was well known in the church at Colossae. In fact, it says, uh, Who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. He was a member at the church there at Colossae. But I like what it says next. It says in the King James, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Think about that for a moment. In fact, I'll tell you what, somebody who has a different translation than the King James, read what you've got. What you got? Wrestling, yes. 
Um, the word there can mean wrestling. So here you've got, got a guy that's wrestling while he prays. Now tell me how that works. How does a person wrestle when they pl- pray? Well, here's the thing that, that you need to appreciate about the King James Version. Uh, it says laboring. You've got the NIV. It says wrestling. Um, I think, I forget, I'll, I'll tell you the wrong thing, but I think it's American Standard Version has the word ag- agonizing in prayer. Um, the word that's being used here is a word that literally means intense agony. And it's the same word that's used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So picture in your mind what Paul was describing, how he's describing Epaphroditus here. He says, Epaphroditus, who is one of you, one of the members of the church there at Colossae, he is always in agonizing prayer for you. And the picture that's being painted is he is praying so hard for you that you should picture in your mind how hard Jesus Christ was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember the Bible describes Jesus as praying so hard that his sweat became as blood and fell from his forehead. Can you imagine someone that is praying for you? If you were a church member and Epaphroditus was one of the preachers there that prayed for you so hard that he was almost in agony. Now, what would he be in agony about that he was praying for them for so hard? So hard? Church will stay together. Why was it important that they stay together? Because of what was happening there. The Gnostics. Remember, this whole book was dealing with that, that particular heresy there. Epaphroditus is at the beginning of this book, and he's one that brought the attention of all these things to Paul. And Paul's writing this letter to the church there to combat this false teaching, and he's letting the members there know, you know, the whole time I've been writing this book, or writing this letter to you to help take care of the problem, Epaphras is over here, boy, and he's just praying. Oh, he's just praying constantly. And he's not just saying, you know, dear God, thank you for our food, and whatever, and says amen. Oh, his prayers are deep-hearted and agonizing. He is so concerned and so worried and so much wants to make sure, as the text says, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And the idea of being perfect and complete in all the will of God is a direct attack back at the Gnostics because the Gnostics kept saying, you need something else. Epaphroditus is praying that you understand that you don't need anything else. You stand in what you need, and it's God. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. Uh, Just the will of God is all you need. But um, sometimes we miss this, and we just look at that word laboring or wrestling. It's the idea that this was a man that not only prayed, but he prayed agonizing prayers. These were deep, heartfelt prayers. And, um, you know, to be quite honest with you, that's... That's a hard thing to do because prayer is something that is so very common with us, those of us who are praying people, and usually it takes some kind of great tragedy or some circumstances in our life where we actually do this kind of praying, where there's something that you want to change or there's some loved one that's hurting or there's some circumstance in your life that you just are praying an agonizing prayer. But evidently, Epaphroditus so loved the church at Colossae, this was the kind of prayer he was praying for them because he did not want the Gnostics to take over. Any questions or comments on that? I feel like I'm doing a lot of talking tonight. All right. But notice his influence in verse 13. Not only was he well known in the church at Colossae, it says, for 
In verse 13, For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. And so um, we don't um, know much about the church at Laodicea except for what the um, book of Revelation tells us. And we know nothing about the church there at Herapolis, uh, but evidently these cities were within 10 miles of each other, so um, Epaphroditus wasn't content just to be there at Colossae. He would go to these other churches, and he was a big influence upon them. And then he mentions um, another uh, person by the name of Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Uh, Two things I want to point out here. First of all, he refers to Luke as the beloved physician. Why did he refer to him as a physician? He was a doctor. Um, we don't know much about medicine back then. We don't know how effective it was, but whatever it was, um, Luke had the credentials to be called a doctor. Now, what's interesting about this is why in the world would the Apostle Paul need a doctor? He had a thorn in the flesh, would you say, Mike? If I'd been beaten a little bit, maybe the doctor there would put a little salve on him or whatever. All right. All right. Part of his ministry. You might, I mentioned this before, um, Luke maybe was the very first medical missionary. Now, we'd have medical missions now. We go to other countries and doctors go to provide health care. Maybe as Paul traveled, he provided health care. Well, the point I wanted you to think about was this too. If Paul was an apostle, didn't he have miraculous power? So why would he need a doctor? All right, and that's what you're going to say too, Michael. Yeah, we need to always understand that miracles were performed in the New Testament not for the purpose of just because everybody uh, needed to be healed because everybody has problems, but they didn't go around healing everybody. The purpose of it was to confirm the Word of God. It was a miraculous event, a miraculous sign to prove that they actually were the spokesmen of God. Um, we have the word today to, to confirm that, but they didn't have the word back then. And you've heard me illustrate this before. If you had one guy on one street corner preaching that God said this, another on another corner preaching something that's exactly the opposite of what this man said, and they both said they got messages from God, how in the world can you prove which one's from God? Well, you see that guy over there who's blind? He can see. What can you do? Oh, I can't do that. I can, I can say baby and that kind of thing, but it won't, it won't do any good. And today we don't need miracles because we have the Word of God. If you've got one person on this side saying this is what God says and another person on this side saying this God says and it's exactly the opposite, how do we confirm it today? Well, what does the Scripture say? And that's why the age of miracles is over with. We have the completed Word of God. We don't need any sign to confirm the Word of God. The Word of God's already been confirmed. But the point I want to make us understand is uh, Luke was with Paul to give him medical care because Paul would not perform a miracle on himself. And in fact, um, my mind has gone blank. I knew it before I got here. But he had a friend that we talked about when we studied the book of Philippians, I believe it was, that he agonized over because he was so sick and Paul couldn't do anything about it. Well, Paul has miraculous power of healing. Why couldn't Paul just say, you're better? Well, because that's not what the purpose of miracles were. The purpose was to confirm the word, and it wasn't just something that was used arbitrarily. But any other questions or comments on that? Yes, Flo. 
All right, people a lot of times use the phrase miracle because it's something that's astounding to them or something that is um, uh, just overwhelming and whatnot. But the definition of a miracle is something that is non-natural. It has to be supernatural. And by supernatural means it's above, super is the play on the Greek word that means above that which is normal, okay? Uh, sometimes people call, the, call it the miracle of childbirth. Well, it's beautiful and it's astounding, and if you've ever seen a child born, it's an amazing thing to see, but that's just as natural as, as anything else. I mean, animals, humans, reproduce and have babies. It's normal. Now, a natural, a supernatural thing would be uh, if somebody who had lost an arm all of a sudden grew one back instantly. Well, that doesn't naturally happen. That's a miracle. Um, my point is that present-day miracles uh, don't happen any longer. Uh, things that sometimes people call miracles but are simply the providence of God or miraculous um, happen all the time. They're not, they're not uh, it's all just natural occurrences of life. We can pray to God, and God through his providence provides a means of healing to someone, but it's not the same type of healing that you read about in the New Testament where a person who was completely lame all of a sudden got up and started walking. Or a person who had been born blind from birth all of a sudden can see. Um, in fact, some of the uh, modern-day miracles that you see on television and whatnot, uh, it always leaves some room for doubt there because it's things that can't be verified. You know, it's not... It's not um, it's not something that you can see a direct and immediate change as opposed to somebody that comes up on the wheelchair and gets out of the wheelchair and walk. Well, you don't know for sure if, what the situation was on that and that kind of thing. Does that make sense? I absolutely believe because the Bible teaches it, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that the age of miracles has ended. There's no modern-day miracles anymore because there are no more apostles anymore. And there's nobody who has spiritual gifts anymore because the apostles could only impart spiritual gifts. And once the last apostle died out, there was nobody left to impart spiritual gifts. And once those who had spiritual gifts imparted by the apostles died, that was the end of it. I wouldn't castigate somebody because they called something a miracle, but there's no... Well, here, here's, the big, here's the big thing. Yeah, here's the big thing. You know, I used to live in Cleveland, Tennessee. I was preached for a congregation there, and that's the headquarters for the Church of God. And so I had a lot of run-in with Church of God preachers, and this was the Pentecostal branch of the Church of God. And they believed in speaking in tongues, modern miracles and whatnot. And the big thing that I always would talk to them about was the graveyard test. If you really had the spiritual ability like the apostles did, which they claimed, all the way going all the way back to the day of Pentecost, I said, you ought to be able to raise the dead. And they would say, um, well, I can't raise the physical dead, but I can raise the spiritual dead. Well, that's not a miracle. I can do, raise the spiritual dead. Or oftentimes I would say, well, I'll tell you what. What does um, Mark um, 2.37 say? And they look at me and they'll say, well, what, I don't know. What does it say? And I said, if you were really an apostle, you had a recollection of everything that Jesus said while he was on this earth. And you don't even know what the scripture is there? And so we would have run-ins like that. The, the You'll hear about people on the radio or watch some faith healing thing on a television show about somebody performing a miracle. But if people really had that power and they were really wanting to give that power, they wouldn't rate to do it at rallies where people were watching on TV and taking up 
contributions, they would go to the hospitals and take care of the situation once and for all instead of waiting for a big advertisement, big commercials, bring everybody in and pass that plate and give me that money. Absolutely. I, I believe with all my heart that God answers prayers today. He just does it in a natural means. He doesn't do it in a supernatural means. Just to get real personal here, and I, won't, I don't think it would embarrass her, but about 20-something years ago, Carol was diagnosed with cancer and had a tumor in her pancreas. And they removed it, but she went back to the doctor, and the doctor told her, said, you're just eat up with cancer. said, it's just everywhere. And so that was quite shocking, and we ended up at the Mayo Clinic up in Rochester, Minnesota. You know what, when we got there, couldn't find any cancer anywhere. Now, what happened? Well, there's a lot of people praying for us, but I don't think miraculously all of a sudden the cancer was gone. What I think was happened that the doctor in Knoxville, Tennessee, didn't know what he was talking about. And he would, this was a very weird kind of cancer, and the things that they thought were cancer in her body were, what do they call them, hemangiomas, which are little like blood blisters on her liver and whatnot. But we got up there, we thought that we got to do something. This is, oh, this is, you know, this is our last hope. It wasn't a miracle that took place, and, but I believe God was behind it, and God answers my, answered my prayers on that particular thing. But I don't believe all suddenly she was covered in cancer, and all suddenly it was gone. I believe it was probably more than likely a misdiagnosis. In fact, I even told her at the time before we left, I said, I really think this doctor's wrong. I don't know if he knows what he's talking about. And so you know, that's how that worked. But we did go up there to make sure. We went to the very best place we could go. But anyway... We've got uh, about nine minutes, so I'm going to move on to something else here because we could talk about uh, miracles and the miraculous, and we'll save that for another time. But he mentions Luke, the beloved physician, and then he mentions Demas, greet you. Now, I want you to look at Demas, and I want you to look at all the different names that he has mentioned thus far, and tell me something that's different and odd about Demas. Notice all the different things. And the verses about all these different men, and you get to Demas. I think I saw your hand first, Mike. Just said his name. Yeah, they talk about beloved and faithful servant. They talk about uh, who labors with us. But it gets to Demas, and he just says, Demas. He is the one that's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10 that says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And so, and that Paul wrote that while he was in Rome waiting to, for his trial, and so somehow or another, from the time he wrote the book of Colossians till he got to 2 Timothy, Demas had left him, and so some people think that the reason why there's nothing said about Demas, it's almost like Paul could read the handwriting on the wall that this was about to happen. So he says nothing other than, well, Demas is here, because he doesn't say anything, give him any superlative. And then in verse 15, because I've got to move on, so I want to finish this up, it says, salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, the King James Version says, and the church which is in his house. Now, I want to stop here for just a minute. The King James Version says, Nymphus and the church which is in his house. I bet somebody has something different there. It says, Nympha and her house. All right, and American Standard Version says that, and there's a couple other versions. The problem we've got here is the Greek word for nymph or nymphus is one of those words that can be either masculine or singular. Masculine or feminine, not masculine or singular. Masculine or feminine. And so there was always an argument how to translate it. And so some, King James translated it in a, in a male way because it made sense to them that 
it would be a man who had the church in his house. But then some of the writers, like, or other translators like the NIV, understood that there were other women who had churches in their house, Mary being one of them, that we talked about Barnabas, uh, Mary's uh, nephew or, or brother. Um, she had a church in her house. That's where Peter showed up when he escaped from uh, prison. Um, one thing I do want to deal with because I think it's interesting, her name is Nympha. And yes, folks, that is where we get the phrase nymphomaniac from. But here's the thing about Nympha, and more than likely why this was a female, not a male, and King James didn't translate it correctly. The word Nympha in Greek means bride. And all it means is bride. And it wasn't until the seven, it was 1711, I believe it was, some doctor combined the word uh, bride and the word for maniac, which is mania, uh, to get the term that we use now for somebody who is uh, crazy in that particular area. I'm not going into details on that. But the original word was a bride that went crazy. And that's where that came from. But anyway, nympha was a very common term for, for women back then. It just simply meant bride. And more than likely, this is talking about a woman here because of the very definition of the name. Um, verse 16 says, And when this epistle is read among you, calls that it be read also in the church, of the Laodiceans, and they and that that ye likewise read the epistle from the Laodicea. All right. So Paul says that I want you to read this letter in your church, and also want them to read this letter in the church at Laodicea, and then I want you to read also the letter that was sent to the church at Laodicea. Now, where is that letter, the church Laodicea? Where is that letter at, Mike? You don't know. Well, at least you're honest and say you don't know. Well, nobody else knows either, which tells us one of two things. Either the church, that got, the church at Laodicea got a letter from somebody, and it wasn't the Apostle Paul, but Paul thought it was important enough that they read it, and we have no record of it. Or the Apostle Paul wrote a church letter to the church at Laodicea, but we don't have a copy of it. Why don't we have a copy of it if Paul wrote it? All right, maybe they didn't take good care of it. I think the point is, of course, that they didn't take good care of it because they didn't need to take good care of it because it wasn't a, uh, an epistle that evidently the Holy Spirit thought that we needed. Um, there, oh, they, there is somebody who came up with an a, a epistle to Laodicea back a long, long time ago, but they debunked it because all it was was passages out of, out of uh, different epistles. They just kind of ran them together. Somebody just wanted to get some notoriety. But that particular... Uh, passage is uh, particular epistle is gone, so we have don't have a record of it. But that shows you we don't need to have every single thing that every single Christian wrote during that time period, even the apostle Paul. But anyway, verse seventeen says, and they said, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Uh, Archippus, we have seen before; he was in the book of Philemon in verse two. He evidently was the preacher down there at Colossae, and he was close, uh, close friends with Philemon. That's why he's mentioned in the letter to Philemon. Uh, but the church at Colossae is given a command uh, to, to say to Ar Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Why do you think that Paul told the church at Colossae to tell this preacher this? They were supposed to go up to the preacher and say, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast fulfilled, received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Why was he told the whole congregation was supposed to do that? 
Go to that preacher and tell him that. All right. The whole purpose of this was encourage the preacher. You go and encourage that preacher is what they're saying. You say, don't you give up on your ministry. You encourage that preacher. Now, all preachers get discouraged from time to time. But can you imagine preaching for a church where you were dealing with Gnosticism and the craziness and the division and the stuff they were coming up with? And think about Gnosticism itself and the superiority that they carried around with them. That I'm more in, uh, spiritually minded than you are. I'm more intellectual when it comes to spiritual things than you are. I have a special knowledge that you don't have. Well, it'd be very easy for the preacher to say, well, y'all just have at it. I'm out of this place. There's a church down the road that is even offering a, a, a higher salary. I think I'll just go there. And um, so Paul is telling the members of the church at Colossae, tell him not to give up. Tell him to take heed. Take heed to the ministry which thou will receive from the Lord, and thou fulfill it. In other words, finish it. Finish what you started. Don't give up. And then um, the very last verse, and we're going to finish right on time, it says, the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Why does it say the salutation by the hand of me, Paul? Basically put it in plain English, um, I'm, I'm writing this with my own hand, this salutation. Why would he say that? All right. He used a, uh, a, a scribe. He would dictate what he wanted to say, and the scribe would write it down. And he would, um, oftentimes, not only this letter, but other letters, he would write the last little part of it in his own handwriting to give it authority and let people know this is really from him. I don't know how everybody knew his handwriting, but something would change in the letter. And they would see his handwriting. He said, this is me. I'm actually writing this part. Right. It'd be, you know, one would be like in real pretty cursive, and you get to his Paul's part because he had chains on him. Um, he couldn't write good, and chains was more of the ink, and you could tell that was from him. And as with every letter, um, well, he says, remember my bonds, and so that's why I'm talking about the chains. And, but, but with every letter, he finishes the letter as the way he began with grace be unto you. He understood, of course, the importance of the grace of God. And that ends the book of Colossians.